put on the uniform and found myself. I served my country and fell in love with me. Travel the world being all I could be. God showed me here is where I'd be. Always on time. Well, hello and welcome to Women Veteran Social Justice Network here on Heroes Media Group. I am your host, Bridgette McCoy, and I am here with uh, Connie Baptiste, our VP and Senior Ambassador, and we have the wonderful opportunity to be meeting with or listening to or getting an interview from Edna Cummings, who has been touring all over the country uh, talking about the 6-triple-A's Central Postal Directory Battalion, um, the documentary that she is a producer on. And so I'm fangirling over here. I just want to let y'all know that first off. But I really want to get into an opportunity to uh, have and tell us about her military experience, why she chose the military, and, you know, talk a little bit about, you know, what she did in the military. And we can get this this going uh, pretty quickly. Thank you so much for having for coming on. Uh, and I'm talking about having us because I feel like you're having us and not that we're having you on this show. <laughs> Thank you so much. So well, thank you for inviting me to join you today. Yes, I'm originally from Fayetteville, North Carolina, for home of the 82nd Airborne in Fort Bragg. So you mentioned I, why did I choose the military? The military chose me. I was born into it, and I tell everyone that I joined the family business. My father is retired, first sergeant from 82nd Airborne, a couple of tours in Vietnam. He was actually in World War II occupation force. Wow. So we spent a lot of time at Fort Bragg. So that's how I became part of the military family. I was born into it. So I tell everyone again that I joined the family business. I was uh, commissioned through Appalachian State University. I went through their Army ROTC program, and I was the first African-American female to get commissioned from that program. Oh, in Boone, North Carolina, correct. In Boone, North Carolina. I'm surprised you know where that is. <laughs> yes, yes. I lived in North Carolina for uh, about 15 years, so I'm familiar with some of the some of the educational institutions there. <laughs> That's one of them. Right. Wow. Awesome. And so you went in the military. Basically, you had a clear vision of, you know, what the military was on the outside looking in. And so when you right, went in... Yes. <laughs> On the outside. Yes. <laughs> yes. So when you got in, especially at the time that you went in and and for the type of position that you went in for, what was that shift in your perspective like for your service? Coming from being a family member to being an actual uh, in the military serving per- personnel. As you indicated, it's from the outside looking in, and once I joined the military, I was fortunate to go in as a commissioned officer, but even though I'm dating myself, I'm honored to say I was commissioned in the Women's Army Corps, Yeah, and then I was detailed to quartermaster, because at the time, there were limited opportunities for women, and when I started my training, they would actually have separate classes for women to teach us how to wear the uniform and 
some of the unique aspects of being a member of the Women's Army Corps. So that was interesting, and so that's the organization that I joined, but the Women's Army Corps was disbanded shortly thereafter, and I was part of that, I guess, migration and assimilation of women into the Army. Uh, some of the things were still obviously very restricted, some uh, areas of opportunity, but I was privileged to watch it grow and for women to be able to have some of the same opportunities as men which were restricted when I joined. Had a lot of great yes. assignments, uh, station, mm-hmm. first Fort Rucker, uh, went to Korea for a while. Wow. And it's interesting, I actually got out and I had a break in service, but I stayed in the reserves and then I came back in mm. and I uh, was able to have 20 years active federal service. So I was able to retire with full benefits, thank God for that. Yes. <laughs> and just had some wonderful assignments. I retired out of uh, NORTHCOM in Colorado Springs. I was part of that transition team to stand up uh, U.S. Northern Command in NORAD. So that was a an interesting time post-9-11, and we had to array forces uh, within the United States because we didn't have that capability prior to 9-11 to combat uh, terrorism in the homeland. So that's an interesting mm-hmm. perspective I need to ask you about because uh, you went in just at the very end of the, um, you know, the Women Army Corps and then, you know, full-fledged Army and then if I'm hearing you correctly, you were post nine eleven. You you were in still during the uh, nine you know nine eleven. You had insight on a very perspective of what it meant for women to serve. Uh, and so, give us a little bit of a perspective of how that changed um, over the lifetime of your career, because that that's an interesting perspective to be able to present. Well, it was interesting that when I went in, and I'll just address a few issues because there's so many, I recall uh, some of the things that were so frustrating, you know, and right now at the forefront, a lot of sexual harassment. And when we would present that to the leadership, or I would, I was told boys would be boys. And I had one commander, I mean, it was just Edna, get over it, boys will be boys. And so, it, to me, it was a way of saying, you need to learn how to take care of yourself so, and don't count on me to support you. And how sometimes the commanders would get excited about having all female staff and would deliberately seek an all female staff so he would look good in front of the other commanders. And they were open about that in the Jody calls. So if you said something and about the, um, Jody calls or the calls when you we would run in the morning that was just very, very insulting and offensive, you were told to get over it. And when I was in the Pentagon, I recall being part of task studies and, and task force and groups, and we would teach or coach women to, um, I think at the time it was called red light behavior. I believe this was post tail hook, an event that the Navy had that caused a lot of problems with sexual harassment. Some of your listeners may remember that. But I remember implementing something called a stoplight. 
So you could tell your supervisor, sir, that's red light behavior. So we were taught not to be victims, and this is an interesting perspective because as I reflect, I actually recall sitting in a class where we were told to make ourselves unattractive if mm-hmm. we were ever assaulted. I mean, throw up, do something disgusting to turn off the assailant. Mm-hmm. So we were taught how to protect ourselves um, and seemed like the focus was more on us protecting ourselves instead of modifying the behavior. So mm-hmm. it was, is, I'm pleased to see behavior modification from the, uh, individual conducting the act instead of putting so much burden on the recipient mm-hmm. because reflecting I feel that a lot of burden was put on the recipient to say sir red light behavior please stop you know put the individual on notice and if then if they don't stop then you report them so um they're some advantages to both because there are sometimes behaviors can be misinterpreted and I believe that yes you should let someone know that their behavior is offensive however if I'm attacked I shouldn't think okay let me see how I can make myself unattractive so this person will not attack me <laughs> right because that's not even why they're attacking you it's not because you're so exactly so gloriously beautiful it's a power dynamic, and it's they're more about, wanting to assert their power over you. So, right. So, I'm, I'm pleased. <laughs> right. So that's so you probably familiar with that. You said so. It's, it's it's interesting, and I'm glad to see the shift now in some of the um, the training and approaches to address these issues. And for some of that, uh, I think the visibility, well, one, the numbers of women that are coming into the military has grown exponentially over the years. Two, the opening of many of the roles that were just for men, prime, well, let me say on paper, just for men, uh, and, and now making them more visible, uh, having a visible prominence for women showing their, you know, capabilities with working in these roles. Uh, and then congressionally, them changing, you know, the language and, and opening up a lot of the, the, the different fields and the training opportunities for women to be able to scale into these other roles for greater promotion. Because I, so what I'm getting at is most people don't know that a lot of times when women are they're saying, well, this is an equal playing field. A lot of the roles were closed to women, especially going into leadership, because you had to scale into certain roles as a leader. To, to have that on your record to even when you're sitting at the board for those points or, or for them to look at you and say, well, you can go on to this next role. And so that was, it was in the system. It was built into the system to keep women from, you know, being commanders of certain uh, uh, commands and are over certain roles within the military. And now that that has uh, shifted, let's say shifted because it, People were filling those roles, but they weren't getting the credit for it or getting the promotion for it. They were um, just being in those roles. Uh, and, and so now it's a better situation for women to lead and have the roles um, for leadership. I'm talking about top leader being the commanding officer over uh, combat uh, units so that they can go ahead and move up to, you know, general, major general, you know, all of those roles. Can you talk, and I'm kind of, 
I'm trying to skirt around it, but let me just say it this way. The system was set up to keep women from being promoted into those roles because men did not want women over in command over men. And so now that is shifting. And so can you tell us a little bit more about how with, again, with your scope of, of work, how you were, you were in, you were able to see the different changes, what that looked like to you on the inside. Cause I know what it looked like to me on the outside. It seemed like it was forever. Um, you may have had a clearer view of kind of the way that the, the puzzle pieces were happening. It just took time for us to see it on the outside. Well, one area that comes to mind was being a general's aide because when I came in, most generals were men and they did not have female aides. So when it's time for promotions and consideration, if you were not a general's aide or had a position at that level, you were not considered favorably, not only command, but some of the staff positions were even shut out. And I just recall uh, General's aide. So that was something that we call it, you know, punching a ticket. Yeah. And now you see <laughs> women who are aides to male generals and yeah. the, and it, it wasn't okay then because right. that was a lot of fear. I can't be that close to a woman. And it was just, um, some positions, people think of leadership positions in terms of command, but it went beyond that. It just went beyond any positions wherein you were in close proximity to a male on a regular basis. They did not want women to have those positions. They being the institution, women weren't allowed or were not selected. And that's at the higher level, but the lower level, I recall being a platoon leader. And just the suggestion as a platoon leader I would have to be alone with my male platoon sergeant. And I felt like if I was alone in a room or had to go out to do some type of inspection for more than an hour, when I returned, the innuendos, the gossip would start. Uh And so it became hard for me to even do something at a basic level with another male without the suggestion or in innuendo that it was something other than professional going on. So it was almost like you needed a third-party witness every time you did something so you wow. would not be accused of improper conduct. Mm-hmm. And as you know, in any environment, once the rumor starts, yeah. it's hard to stop that because it only mm-hmm. takes an allegation or one statement or someone who does not have your best interests at heart to start something like that. And so that was frustrating alone because people think of not being able to command as an indicator or positions not open to women, but it went far beyond that at the basic level. Yes. Being in close proximity to males during that time that was considered uh, something that was inappropriate. Thank you so much for bringing the nuance to that. I was, I, I so appreciate you for doing that because a lot of our listeners don't understand a lot of the work that we do with with WVSJ. They say, "Oh, you're you're cre- you're talking about stuff that doesn't exist." And and I'm like, "Listen, I listen to the first person narratives of women who have served from World War II all the way to folks just getting out." And I'm telling you what I'm hearing. And so it's always awesome to have someone, um, you know, articulate it in, a, in from their own experience. Uh, because it is important, and I feel like these are the types of conversations that drive changes in, you know, policy, 
in legislation, you know, move the training uh, to be- more nuanced training so that we, you know, remove some of these, these biases and, and stigmas within the systems that have are, that they've been in place for 200 years. So of course there's, there's all these little things that we're constantly bumping up against. And so someone uh, of your caliber can articulate it in a way that maybe the first, first or second year, uh, person serving is saying, I'm having a challenge. And they're saying, well, what is the challenge? This, these are the types of things that people are still experiencing. Um, and the, and it is, it is historic. This is not something that's new. It's something that has been ongoing. So thank you so much for bringing that to the forefront. I want to get into like when you got ready to retire, where were you in the process? Did you, had you planned it out and you were counting down your days and throwing confetti in the air every day saying one less day? Or were you, you know, kind of secretly feeling some, some anxiety or let's not use anxiety, some, some friction to, you know, leaving uh, a role that you, that you were, you know, had credibility. You, you had, you know, uh, people knew who you were and respected that, you know, did you, what was it like for you? If you want to talk about feelings, thoughts, and emotions, or just the professional side, either one is fine or both. All of the above, everything you mentioned, because uh, one thing about the military, it's not a job, it's a lifestyle. It's not a career, it's a life. And I've been part of the military forever, as I told someone, I've always had an ID card. So I was born with one, and I still have one, so I don't know life without and ID card. However, I just know different roles. When I made the decision to retire, I can share this now. It's been, I retired in 2003. I was being considered for a general officer. I had taken my photo and put my packet in. And then my daughter, a single parent, my husband died in 89. So it was a single parent. That's another story that I don't think we have time in this uh, podcast to go We'll do another podcast and talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) We have a lot of single parents in the military. Yes. And I was in Colorado Springs, actually, and I'll just speak speak on the professional level. So I was in Colorado Springs and had night shifts at Cheyenne Mountain, and those of you who've been to Colorado Springs, you know about the snowfall. And I remember just driving down, it may have been around 7 o'clock in the morning, getting off the night shift after taking the uh, taking the beach blanket off my windshield so I could see instead of scraping, that was a trick that I learned, <laughs> so you could see out of your window. <laughs> so driving down the mountain from Cheyenne Mountain, and then I checked in the office and They were putting out the duty roster, you know, for the next, because this is post 9-11. We had a lot of um, operation center activities going on at NORAD. And then going home to see my daughter off to school, and she was in the 10th grade, and she said no one was going to come out here to see me graduate. And that had been her second high school. Mm. And keep in mind, high school was four years, so she'd already been to two high schools. Mm-hmm. And she was so down about being in Colorado away from friends and just felt that no one will pay attention to her anymore because all of our family was on the East Coast. And something inside of me just said, enough. 
And I decided that, you know, I've given my family has been with me and supportive. We moved around one time. We moved four times in six years. Mm. I said, enough. So once I did said, I fortunately had some good friends, coaches, and mentors and mentioned when it's time to retire, you have to prepare to retire. And you just can't say, okay, on this date, I'm going to retire and don't do anything to prepare mentally. Mm-hmm. So it was around, I guess, six months prior to a date where I could retire. I was, I was unsure of the date. I knew I had the 20 years in, but the paperwork you have to go through for retirement is, is not an overnight process. And so I just called some people I knew, so I'm thinking about retiring, and this is why, some professional reasons. So I have my packet in for general officer. I have, you know, I don't know my chances. I just don't know. And then with my family situation, this is, well, if you decide to retire, you weigh everything, you need to prepare, and this is how you prepare. And suddenly let people know you're leaving the military. And so what I started doing when people would come to my office for a meeting, it says, oh, can we follow up with you? And I would say, I'm not sure if I'm going to be here. I may retire. So I started planting those seeds just to see what my options were, creating the buzz. So that was part of that preparation. And I was really blessed and fortunate that when I retired, I had five job offers. And those job offers came because I planted those seeds, not unprofessionally, just subtly. The opportunity came up. I'm thinking about retiring. And and so the question would be, where are you going or what do you want to do? So I knew I would come back to the East Coast where we left so my daughter could return back to her high school and at least have a smooth transition for her. And so I would... And it was in the Washington, D.C. area, and at the time, the Homeland Defense Mission was relatively new, and a lot of organizations needed that expertise. And I had a lot of that because I'd been working Homeland Defense, Homeland Security-type positions pre-9-11. And so with that experience when no one else was paying attention, there were some organizations uh, who were paying attention to some things going on in the Homeland we call it that in that asymmetrical, the non-traditional um, military roles. And long story short, I ended up with some job offers, had some interviews, and I actually cut my transition leave short because the job offer that I accepted um, wanted me there before I wanted to show wow. up. <laughs> now that's, that's the thing, I guess, in a nutshell to sum it up. You have to prepare not only, you know, physically with the paperwork and your family, you have to prepare mentally and let people know what you want to do and allow people to coach and mentor you outside of the uh, transition. In the Armory called this is ACAP then, but now the Soldier for Life transition. So that's a good program because one thing that stuck with me from that program and that transition class that we went to is that if you don't do something within five years of retirement, your mortality rate increases because mm-hmm. you stop taking care of yourself. You, the purpose mm-hmm. is gone. The passion loses. So they encourage, especially military people, the retirees who stayed in 20 years, that's all you know. You really have to prepare yourself mentally and make the transition. And some of the things that I really had to work on was just the tone 
And now when people say you talk so soft, <laughs> because that's <laughs> because I was told to tone it down. Yes. I got that mm-hmm. so much. <laughs> and fortunately, I spent time with the Air Force before I retired. So an Army person with the Air Force, they really oh. tone it down a lot. <laughs> I had to yes. change my writing style instead of the wheels. My wheels went to shells. Yeah. The Air Force was great about gold days and family days, and I would get irritated. Like, why aren't people working on Friday afternoon? You, you know, <laughs> so the Air Force was a little. <laughs> yeah, Connie is our Air Force. Uh, uh, she's our leader, and she's a, a Air Force representative, and we tease a lot because uh, when there's something going on, she says we didn't do that in the Air Force, and we just everyone just kind of looks <laughs> and we laugh. I know, about so it. you understand? Yeah, it does. Keep you. Yes, yeah, it does yes. keep you working with the Air Force. Connie is, and I, if I can say this about Connie, uh, she has helped to refine some of the 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 uh, the, the rougher areas uh, with from the army. I'm an army daughter. You know, my parents was an army. My grandfather was army. So you know, we got a couple of generations of army, and it's it's just like drive right. on, drill start, drive on, let's get it done. Who are you know all that? And Connie is like, mm, is that what we're doing today? And I'm like, well, maybe we're not doing that. <laughs> Show me. <if> I know. <laughs> yeah, because the Air Force could even wear earrings in, oh, uh, we call them the BDUs, and that was no, that was a no-no. We could wear earrings in the Air Force. That was wow. in the Army. That was a big deal. Like, oh my God, we can wear earrings now. They had mini blinds in the barracks instead of shade. So yeah, they had yeah. nice beds. They had. We called it a hotel. We called them hotels when we would, because I lived in Europe with a on um, off the base, and the the off base yeah. housing for the Air Force, which is what I ended up getting, uh, was completely different from off <laughs> off base here uh, for the Army. And people would say, you, "This is Army housing." I say, "No, I, I got on the list for the Air Force." They say, "You lucky? Have you been by the Air the Army's?" I said, "No, I I drove past, and I didn't even want to look because I didn't even want to know." So. <laughs> It, it is a difference, right. a significant difference. Uh, and so that's always, uh, a, 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 you know, we poke fun at each other about who did what. We all served and supported the mission of protecting and defending our country. Uh, so it's always interesting to, to for us to get into those conversations. But uh, it's fun. It's fun. It's all in fun for our listeners because they'll be like, oh, there's some stuff going on. Nope, that's just... Just like you had a big sister, a little sister, or a cousin. You tease them about different things. We do the same thing with the military. So I, I really want to uh, talk about that transition because it sounds like you kind of had things in, in you know, positions so that it was a, a less of a bumpy transition professionally and um, emotionally because you had connected some dots for your daughter so that you could be on the, the East Coast back with family. And so... That kind of, you know, positioned you to be able to do the the work that you were doing and then get involved in some of your more philanthropic works that you, you know, we want to get into talking about that. So when did you decide that you wanted to, you know, begin to give back? I know military personnel, we always are doing something. We're always giving back, but from an intentional point of view. And how did that lead you into uh, this huge project? uh, the documentary. So kind of want to segue into that and let Connie kind of takes the lead in some of this discussion as well. You're listening to WVSJ, the Women Veteran Social Justice Network. As you mentioned, military, we have a, a uh, 
focus, a passion for service. And so I've always done that. And I'll focus on more the veterans outreach efforts over the past few years. Uh, when I retired, I went to work, you know, at with several contracting companies, just depending on the contract. So that was the path I took. And then I became an independent consultant to have a better work-life balance because one thing about retiring and working with any company, whether it's federal government or contract or private or whatever, you don't have the same flexibility. So that's something that took a lot of getting used to. The military was expected that you would take time off to go work out, go to the gym without taking leave. And so with these companies, if you want to come to work at 10 o'clock because you work out in the morning, (laughs) you have to take leave or time to do that. So it's hard to fit that in. So after several years of working uh, as a defense contractor, I decided that I would – do some things that would give me a better work-life balance. And that's very crucial to do that or to have that. For me, you know, it was. And it's hard. Uh, Sometimes, even though the military, you move around a lot, the the work can be sometimes intense. Mm -hmm. As a civilian, it's a different mindset because nobody really cares that much about what you did. They want to know about what you can do and how you can contribute to the company's bottom line. So there are times I've worked for an E6 as a contractor. Wow. So rank did not matter at all. And that's, now that's the big shift a lot of people don't understand once you mm-hmm. retire that E5 or E6 who may have spent Six, seven years in the military, maybe got a job um, as a contractor or as a GS, and now you as a contractor or as an employee of another company, that person is your boss. Mm-hmm. And so you have to really set aside the rank, take it off your collar, and you're not in charge of anything. You are in a support role. You're getting paid for your ideas and your product. And you have to know when to back off. And a lot of military people don't know how to do that in these uh, organizations. And it's it's challenging. It it really is. But um, I was lucky to have a lot of support. And most of the times with these companies are other veterans and other militaries. So we form like an informal network uh, where we coach each other. And instead of uh, saying, I recommend, you never tell someone you recommend anything, you offer or you suggest. So little things like that oh. where, you know, you have to allow people to tap you on the shoulder and say, okay, scale it down a little bit. You're not in charge of anything. You don't recommend anything. You offer your suggestions. Mm-hmm. And that makes a big difference, and it can soften the tone and the how you're received. Um, so back to, I guess, some of the veterans' advocacy after doing that for a while, I joined the board of directors at Appalachian State, the foundation board of directors, mm. and that is the group that most colleges, all colleges have a foundation board where you raise money, you oversee the donations. And I set up a veterans uh, scholarship fund. It's called the Warrior Fund in Appalachian. So that kind of got me started with some of these deliberate veterans um, organizations or giving back to uh, veterans. So that's going pretty well, giving scholarships to 
student veterans or their children because the Appalachian didn't have something like that from the university. So I set that up, and uh, through that process, I just stopped paying attention more to opportunities where I could work with veterans organizations. So I've been a member of a group called The Rocks since the early 90s. Now, The Rocks Incorporated is a international military organization where we mentor uh, junior officers and senior civilians, officers and civilians are members. So it's a mentoring organization, and it's been around uh, for quite some time, gives ROTC scholarships. And I happen to be on the website of the Rocks, and I noticed a link to the 6888 monument. They were looking for donations. Mm-hmm. And I'd read about the 6888 maybe a year ago and was so impressed because the commander's name was Charity Edna Adams. Yeah. And so it was another black female colonel named Edna who had similar challenges. Mm-hmm. People uh, not saluting, uh, not giving her the respect that she deserved as a military officer. And I felt cheated because I said, I wish I would have read this book when I was on active duty because yeah. I would not have been, I would have known what to expect because Uncle Sam and all of your military training says you will do A, B, C, and D, and that's the expectation you have in terms of rendering military mm-hmm. courtesy and just an operational environment you expected to perform in, and it doesn't always happen the way it is written. <laughs> yeah, true. After reading that book, I then saw where Carlton Fieldpot out at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, was spearheading the effort again to erect a monument at Buffalo Soldier Park at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Mm-hmm. And any of your listeners who have been to Fort Leavenworth, there's a beautiful statue called the Buffalo Soldier Monument that was dedicated in 1992. And Eddie Dixon was the sculptor, and Commander Philpott at the time spearheaded that effort. He led that effort. And after the Buffalo Soldier Monument, there are other monuments at Buffalo Soldier Park, uh, Henry Flip or Roscoe Robinson, the Triple Nickel, General Powell, General Grierson. So it's a beautiful park, a circle of first. And so when I saw he was raising funds for that monument, I called him and said, how can I help? And so we spoke for about two hours. I'd met him back in the 90s, and he would had no clue who I was, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but I knew who he was, mm-hmm. and he uh, allowed me to join his team along with another um, a member who lives not too far from me in Maryland. We, you know, we always say it's a divine connection of Master Sergeant Retired Elizabeth M. Frazier. We mm-hmm. called within days of each other, and he connected us. And so we met and devised um, a plan to raise money for the monument. We wrote letters. We went on radio shows doing things like, you know, like this podcast Every opportunity we got just in the Washington, D.C. area, we did outreach asking for money. And that's, it's hard to ask people for money, but it gained some momentum. Uh, the Afro newspaper was very instrumental. A major retired Edgar Brookings was a distribution manager, and I don't know if you know about the Afro newspaper. It's the oldest black newspaper in the United States. And the Afro newspaper and other members of other uh, 
black newspapers were referenced as sources, uh, referenced as a key source for many of the stories during World War II regarding African-American soldiers because mm-hmm. or military. Because the mainstream press did not cover it the way the black right. press did. Right. And it was also the double victory campaign, the quest for victory at home for democracy and fighting uh, democracy abroad. So the double B campaign mm-hmm. uh, took hold in uh, the World War II. So once reading about that, you know, I involved Edgar because he is very connected to the black press through the Afro newspaper. Right. And we just started uh, our campaign to raise money, and we did that. And the Six Triple Eight Monument was dedicated at the end of November 2018, November 30th, yeah. and five living mm-hmm. members attended the dedication. So while we were working on the monument, Jim Ferris from Lincoln Penny Films contacted us. Jim Ferris. It just completed a documentary about Hello Girls, about World War One switchboard operators mm-hmm. who, when they returned from the Army after World War One, the Army said they were never soldiers and they did not receive any type of recognition right. until 60 years later. Similar story they put through, I think, over 50 million calls in World War One, And so this, the, the parallels were so, so similar because these were communicators. The 6888, they handled the mail, also communications. So similar stories, although the 6888 did get the recognition as veterans, they never got any type of award until 2019, this year. Mm-hmm for their work in Europe. So we'll talk some more about the 6888. But in a nutshell, that's how I got involved, you know, with the uh, 6888. That is so exciting. There's just so much history. Like, I like that's like 12 podcasts. Just <laughs> <laughs> constructed all of that history right there. That would be mm-hmm. just so much. Uh, and so I appreciate you sharing that with the listening audience because, um, a lot of our work with WVSJ has been about bringing forth the narratives of women who served, uh, of all backgrounds, of all diversities, um, uh, to, to the forefront because we want to make sure that people recognize that, you know, we have put forth a tremendous effort in, in, in war and in peacetime, uh, to protect the, the people and the land. And so it's important that our narratives have the same hero level standing as our male counterparts. And so, you know, documentaries and, and his, historical um, storytellers like yourself uh, bringing these narratives forward help to uh, change policy. People don't believe that. But a lot of times um, our policymakers seeing these documentaries um, and, and then us bringing the, the these changes forward and saying, hey, this is what was happening 60 years ago. It's still happening. Can we do something to change that? And they say, oh, yes, yes, we've got to do something to change it. But until that, they, you know, they, until they see it and hear it, um, they don't know that these things are, are, are real and that they are um, happening to our um, women who are serving. And just like the six triple eight not being awarded, um, you know, it's been almost 70, what, 75 years. And so here we are. Um, and I don't remember the bill number. So could you to remind us about the bill that's going forward in Senate to, uh, you know, um, move 
forward, you know, get, having the women recognized for their bravery and their service? So a couple of things. The um, first award they received was the Meritorious Unit Commendation, and that was awarded February 20th of 2019. The Secretary of the Army, thanks to the efforts of Senator Jerry Moran, <clears throat> excuse me, from Kansas, Mm-hmm. The I don't know if you're familiar with the 10th Cavalry. That's the Buffalo Soldiers. Oh, yeah. yes. Buffalo Soldiers. That that unit, the first all black peacetime unit, was uh, raised or activated in Kansas, Fort Leavenworth. Mm-hmm. So Senator Jerry Moran has been very very supportive. He attended the monument dedication, and so Commander Phil Pot again contacted him about uh, um, awarding the unit, a meritorious unit accommodation, and the senator contacted the secretary of the Army and said, make this happen, and it did. Okay. Um, prior, and prior to that, he also issued something called a Senate resolution in October of 2018 honoring okay. the 6888 and the monument. Yes. So when I attended the monument dedication, uh, Jim Ferris had mentioned to me, he said, you really should put the 6888 in for a Congressional Gold Medal. Yes. And I said, how do you do that? <laughs> Jim <laughs> provided me a template. And the thing about the template is basically the bill. He says, look at the bill, look at the facts. You need uh, facts about the unit. You submit that. And hopefully somebody will introduce it. So after contacting some other legislators who did not move quite as fast, I contacted Senator Moran and when I got back from um, the monument dedication in November, first part of December, and he had the Senate bill introduced uh, by the end of February. So he moved very fast to introduce the Congressional Gold Medal Bill from the Senate side for the 6888, and that's Bill number S, as in Sierra, 633. Now, in order for a bill to pass, a Congressional Gold Medal Bill to pass, or a bill, you have to have a Senate and House version. Mm-hmm. So the next challenge was to get the House, someone from the House of Representatives, to introduce the House Companion Bill, the House version of the Congressional Gold Medal. So I met some family members at the dedication service, and I just started asking, do you know anyone from Congress who can help us out and introduce the House Companion Bill to the 6888? So we contacted some legislators, and the one who stepped up was Representative Moore from Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Anna Mae Robertson lives in Wisconsin, and mm-hmm. uh, Representative Moore had helped her get some of her medals that she had not received from the from World War II. Now, these are not awards; these are your standard medals, World War right. II Victory Medal, medals at that level. Nothing for uh, you know service in terms of not accommodation medal like the, the meritorious unit accommodation. So in June 2018, Representative Moore introduced H.R. Hotel Romeo uh, 3138. That's the House Companion Bill to the 6888 Senate Bill. 
So in order for these bills to pass, we have to have two-thirds votes from the House and the Senate. So as of today, we have 60 co-sponsors or votes from the House side and 14 from the Senate side. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that means we have a ways to go. So the two-thirds in the House, 67 votes, two-thirds in the Senate, 290 votes. So we, what we are asking for people who support the 6888 and the Congressional Gold Medal to contact their senators and House of Representatives and ask them to co-sponsor these bills. You can go online to congress.gov and put in H.R. 3138, 6AAA Congressional Gold Medal, or S. 633, 6AAA Congressional Gold Medal, and contact your senator or representative and ask them to support the bill. Um, I have a copy of the letter. Um, I met Miss Anime when I yes. went to Wisconsin for our um, CD Awards program and mm-hmm. spent a lot of time with her, and then I still keep in touch with Cherie. And her living here in Georgia is really nice because I had told her what we were doing and how we're bringing the documentary here. And on November 30th, we will actually be showing it in two different locations, the Auburn Avenue Research Library. And if you know anything about Atlanta, Auburn Avenue was the black hub. And everything happened on Auburn Avenue. So to do it at the research library, it's also a big deal here in Atlanta so that that history is captured there. And then our second location later that afternoon is going to be at the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library and Museum, which, again, is all in connection with the social justice piece. So I have not met Jim in person. We've had... um, Virtual conversations, and like you, when I ran into him and heard about him through another mutual friend, Vera, who's very active um, in the veteran community in Wisconsin also. And Wisconsin seems to be on the cutting edge of recognition and doing for veterans, especially the women veterans. So just reading all of the information, and then I also saw that you sat next to um, Macbeth from Georgia. Well, the legislative, her legis- yeah. I sat behind her and next to her legislative director. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. What a perfect Yes, director. and she she just signed on to co-sponsor. Perfect. So, <laughs> right. So because the thing about the 6888, they were the only African-American Women's Army Corps unit to serve in Europe during World War II. There were more than 6,000 black women on active duty during World War II, but the 6888 was the only unit to go overseas to clear a multi-year backlog of mail that consisted of more than 17 million pieces. They cleared 17 million pieces in Birmingham, England alone. And you think in 1945, in February, so next year is the 75th anniversary of their mm-hmm. arrival, from ages probably 17, I think the oldest may have been early 50s, but 
primarily, you know, 17 to, say, 25, 30-year-old young women, young people, just forget about race or gender for a moment, young people getting on a boat, being chased by German U-boats. You're on this boat for 11 days, so you have to dodge German U-boats while you're sailing. And then once you land, bombs explode around you. You run for cover. You get on a train and go to an environment that has 17 million pieces of mail in rat-infested, dirty, moldy conditions. You're working in blackout operations because it's wartime and you don't want to be detected by the enemy. That's right. Three shifts, 24-7 operations, processing 65,000 pieces of mail per shift. And you come in under the Army's expectation of six months. You clear 17 million pieces of mail in three months. And then you move on to locations in France, Rouen, France, and Paris. And something interesting, we talked about uh, sexual uh, harassment or sexual assault. While the women were in Rouen, France, no women could have firearms, military police. Now, the six triple eight, 855 women, they were called, they were self-sustaining. They had their own cooks. They had their own motor pools. So you had women performing all the logistics and administrative and operational mm -hmm. uh, aspects of a battalion. No outside support. All women, and it's all wow. segregated. Wow. And so, when once they got in France, there, there was such a novelty, and they had the term I saw was curious onlookers. They had yeah. to learn martial arts to defend themselves from sexual harassment, sexual assault, or people who became too familiar, as we say in the South. Yeah. I'm from North Carolina. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that, that's something that's unique, and it just wasn't, you know, the women, period, of any race could not have um, firearms. The military police could not carry firearms. So that's something that was new to me because the idea was men or the male military police would provide protection, but in a segregated unit, Women's Army yeah. Corps, there's no protection for these women. So they were just out there to their own devices. And something else your uh, listeners may not know, there are four women buried in Normandy, and three are from the 6888. Yeah. During World War II, um, the Army didn't send the bodies back home. Or the military didn't because it was wartime and you have, especially after Normandy, you have more than 10,000, well, I think it's approximately 10,000 uh, servicemen, service members buried in Normandy. There are only four women at Normandy and three are from the 6th Uh Three women were killed in a vehicle accident mm -hmm. and the Army could not uh, send, did not send the Army, the bodies back. And the women in the 6888 took up money to bury the bodies, and they didn't have any type of formal uh, mortuary affairs or funeral home uh, facilities. And, but because of the demographic of the women with so many skills, they took care of the bodies. Some of the women had worked in funeral homes, so they prepped mm. the bodies, and German soldiers built coffins. So these uh, women are buried uh, in Normandy. Ahead, I, I look at the list of um the media that you guys have been getting and, and it being shown 
at the past weekend? Was it shown uh, as a separate event? Was it something during the program while you guys were there? Right. The Congressional Black Caucus, it was a separate event. It was shown at the Civil War, African American Civil War Museum on U Street. And it was uh, shown along with the Invisible Warriors, uh, Rosie the Rivers, which is also for Congressional Gold Medal. There were 600,000 black Rosies during World mm-hmm. War II. Um, mm-hmm. so that, but these were abbreviated, um, uh, screenings. And along with, uh, the, a Civil War Museum at the Congressional Black Caucus where we showed. In May, we toured the United Kingdom as guests of the U.S. Embassy. So I tell you, listeners, if you have a business or a product, social media, um, you all follow me on Twitter. And the embassy saw one of my stories, or posts, not stories, posts about the 6888. This was back in March. And the U.S. Embassy in the United Kingdom contacted me and said, we love to hear your story. And we love to talk to you. So you know, we exchanged information. And in May, we toured the U.S. Embassy. And the embassy also donated, a, uh, excuse me, they dedicated a blue plaque at mm. the King Edward School in Birmingham, England, where mm-hmm. the Sixth worked. So along with the monument that we have at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, there's now a blue plaque in England, in Birmingham, England, at the King Edward School where the women work. Yeah, I I follow a lot of the things that you guys do, so which was really uh, part of my mission to bring it here and, and to do the work and then to be able to have both locations, I I'm just... As Bridget said earlier, the fangirling and just to be able to stand where I am because of what they did and what you did. I've done the mail deployed on a classified site with no support. So I understand how important it is and how critical it is to the mission that a lot of people don't think about because there is no FaceTime now. Right. Right. And that's, uh, yeah, didn't have phones. And when we were at the monument dedication, coincidentally, your screening is November 30th. And that's also the date in 2018 where we dedicate the monument. Look at that. Anniversary date. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if that was planned, but. No, we can just go ahead and add that to the, to the flyer and the information that we've posted out there. We've been blasting it out to the um, community and with great response. And, and um, one of the things that uh, we've talked about as a board is that, you know, people are not recognizing the fact that this is a history, this, the one, that this is a history making moment that, you know, we, we're having these multiple bills going out. We got a documentary out, you know, presenting the narratives of women and women of specifically women of color who serve and but then an organization like ours is that was founded and and uh, by you know a woman of color and run by women because we we pretty much have not had anyone else to take up the cause with us at the level that we've taken it up um to to consistently do this work and then to bring a, a documentary to Atlanta 
I mean, this is, again, um, as Connie has said, history. We, we're continuing to carry forth the history because I recognize, just like she does, the, that your contributions and your insight uh, paved the way for us to even be able to serve at the capacity, at the level that we were able to serve. Um, I came in during the Gulf War and, and exited out during that time, and Connie re- uh, retired post-9-11. So... You know, it's like we 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 would not have been able to do the things that we were able to do uh, without the the insight and and the paving the way that you all have made. But this, again, fangirling is is like it's not even a strong enough word because I'm just like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I uh, have been so excited for to see this. I, I created, I began to create a e-learning um, tool to uh, to run alongside of the um, the documentary for. You know, for uh, classes and educational institutions want to bring that information so that, you know, they can, you know, scale it whatever way you want to scale it, but began to craft that because I felt like this is something instead of having, you know, people drag somebody to the, to their schools and go through all the logistics. It's like show the documentary. Here's a e-learning module so you can do a flipped classroom if you need to and, and make it, a, make it an educational moment so that we're not <clears throat> missing this history, I think it should be taught at the war colleges. I think that um, these are things that, you know, crafting these moments um, to, to begin to shift how the history is portrayed in a lot of these institutions of higher learning, it's time. And so it's like, let's, let's, Usher that in, <laughs> whatever. And we are we. That's great. We are scheduled to show at the. It's at the um, History and Education Center at Carlisle, the War College. I'm, I graduated from the War College, and yeah. there is. I opened the documentary. Spoiler alert, kind of with oh. a War College study from 1925 that talks about how blacks are suitable for combat and how they just don't have the mental capacity to perform in combat, which was the basis for the military not to allow blacks to serve. And if you watch the movie Tuskegee Airmen, you know, it's a docudrama, but that study is mentioned. It's called something else. And so when I pulled it up, I was like, that's it. So that set the tone for blacks to be in menial tasks. It was the scientific justification stating that they're incapable of learning. Mm-hmm. And this was in 1925, you know, after World War One, And that attitude prevailed to World War Two. But World War Two started before Truman's order in 1945 to integrate the armed forces. So there was this stigma and cloud still hanging over African-American soldiers or military personnel, not just soldiers, because that's a collective term referring to all military personnel, whether it's the Tuskegee Airmen, the Harlem Hills flight fighters, the Lost Mm -hmm. 11 uh, unit that was um, captured in Belgium. I mean, there's so, so many stories, the Balloon Brigade. Now these stories are coming out, people asking, why did it take so long, more than 70 years? Well, it takes, I I call it, it takes time for people to grow into their voices, number one, to get people's attention. And now social media, you can no longer bury 
these stories and the sanitized version of history that omitted the contributions of our underrepresented populations and a lot of stories about women as well, not just African Americans, but underrepresented populations, um, you know, who did not get their due during uh, service of our country. So I'm just, you know, honored to have the opportunity to be part of that narrative or t telling the story. Because there are so many voices that have made up the 6888. I had the honor of meeting Dr. Brenda Moore, who wrote the book, To Serve My Country, To Serve My Race. And she's one of the premier sources for the 6888. Mm -hmm. Interviewed a lot of the women. Her information helped us identify, um, you know, the 855 members of the 6888. And we are missing a few. But Dr. Moore's work, I, she's at the uh, University at Buffalo. She's an assistant professor of sociologist. She is a, just a wonderful um, sociologist telling stories about women. She has several other books out. So if you have a chance to look up, you know, Dr. Brenda Moore, University at Buffalo. Wonderful. Uh, I had her on speed dial. <laughs> as I was <laughs> working on the documentary. And so she was at the Congressional Black Caucus and was also, you may have seen her picture on social media. Yeah. Uh, she gave a presentation and a special shout out to the Moffa Port Marines, uh, Yo Jeter, the, uh, Master mm -hmm. Sergeant, Gunnery Sergeant Marine Corps, and we teased, you know, Marines open the doors and the Army come behind, absolutely, because he's my mentor coach. For the six triple eight congressional gold medal, the Moffa Point Marines got theirs in 2012. So he's yeah. given me some pointers and tips on how to navigate the halls of Congress and trying to bring people together. And it's working. Um, got some votes from the Congressional Black Caucus. And when I knock on doors and follow up doing some of the things that Joe Jeter's told me to do, it's working. Yeah. So it's truly a team effort. Um, Liz Helm Frazier, Jim Theris, uh, Dominic Johnson at Fort Leavenworth, Carlton Fieldpot, the Afro newspaper, and so many others. You know, we we're all carrying the story from the monument. The, I call it the M4 campaign, <laughs> you know, military terms. We had the monument, the muck, the meritorious unit accommodation, the movie, and now we have the medal. So, and uh, Liz Helm Frazier intends to start work on getting a stamp for the 6888. Yes. Oh, that was I, I, I did hear that. I did hear that through the grapevines. And just know <laughs> right. that. Um, That's next. <laughs> WVSJ is, is very active in getting the story told. Um, we're planning to take it to California. Um, we've got some contacts with the Unsung Hero Project another one of our good friends, and just being able to tell it again and again until every place we go, that when we say the 6888, we don't get the deer in the headlight look. <laughs> and and be able to make sure that our history is told, because a lot of people don't know that they, they trained here in Georgia at Fort Overthorpe. That's correct. Right. Um, in the segregated South. So that's Another accomplishment to be able to complete that here with all of the odds stacked against them, mm -hmm. it says a lot. So we thank you again um, 
for allowing us to just be a small part of telling the story. Yeah, well, thank you for listening. I know a lot of information. I don't think we have enough time. It'll probably take a few days. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. yes it, it has been a pleasure. I mean, this is, uh, you know, again, it's an honor to to uh, get to talk with you and and have this opportunity to share this, this your narrative alongside the narrative of the six triple eight. And I always tell people that, you know, these threads are all together the tapestry of serving, like each one of the narratives of every woman that has come on and spoken about their their experience is part of that that tapestry, the same with the six triple eight and all of the other narratives that are yet to be told. And so we're definitely appreciative of you taking the time out of your schedule to uh, to sit and talk with us, it, it'd be great to have another opportunity to, uh, you know, get a little deeper into some of the other, uh, parts of it. Maybe right before the, uh, our showing of the, uh, documentary, maybe sometime the end of October, if you have time. I don't know what your travel schedule is like. We would definitely love to have you back to talk more about, um, the 6888 and some of the other, uh, projects moving forward. I think you said M5. Uh, M4, what did you call it? M4. M4. Oh, I called it my M4, M4 campaign. M4 campaign, and, and, we're, and, and now we're starting on to, to another alphabet, the S, so we'll figure out what the other ones Sorry, are. Sorry, but the and, the, <laughs> and everything else. So we'll else. keep adding. adding. <laughs> right. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm sure Connie is as well. And we just want to thank yes. you from all of our listeners here at WVSJ Network on Heroes Media Group. Thank you so much for honoring us with your presence and with this, all of this great information. Okay, well, thank you. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. This is Bridgette McCoy here along with uh, Connie Baptiste. We've had the wonderful opportunity to listen to uh, Ms. Edna give us all of this great information related to 6888. We're hosting the 6888 documentary here in Atlanta on November 30th. 2019 from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. You can find that information on Eventbrite. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for our next podcast. God showed me here is where I'd be.